Welcome back to Death by Ignorance, the podcast that helps you understand your world and avoid unnecessary misery by explaining the stuff they don't want you to know. Death by Ignorance, Episode 9, Medical Tourism, a good idea or an insane risk? What happens when your local electronics store jacks up the prices of every iPhone, television, and laptop by, say, 30%. It's not a trick question. You find an alternative, an online alternative, or you drive across the state line and buy your stuff at a competing shop with better prices. It's a no-brainer. It's why so many of us have become attached at the hip to Amazon. It's capitalism in action, kind of. But what would happen if every healthcare facility, health insurer, drug manufacturer, laboratory service, appliance company, and equipment developer in the country all decided that profits outweighed any moral responsibility or duty to the health of the public? What if the wealth and power of these industries allowed them to buy their very own politicians and, in essence, write their own regulations? And what if their avarice knew no limits and they didn't think twice about plunging hundreds of thousands of working families into ruinous debt and bankruptcy? What options would we have then? The University of Virginia Medical Center is a public hospital. It's a non-profit medical center in Charlottesville. Last year, they made $87 million in profit on $1.7 billion revenue. They have around $1 billion in assorted investments. And in the last six years, they have sued over 36,000 of their own patients to collect on $106 million in patient debt. And much of that money is coming from poor, uninsured Americans who were charged far more than the insurance companies were paying for the same services. And as a result of these lawsuits, the same people who were already unable to afford insurance premiums have been having their wages garnished, their homes taken from them, and their families forced into bankruptcy. They've since made some inadequate changes to their draconian and predatory collection policies, Not that that really helps the people that have already been ruined. And this is just one example of how our healthcare system is hopelessly broken. You can only squeeze so hard before something has to give. And it's out of this miasma of corporate greed that a new alternative for patients has emerged. It's called medical tourism. Medical tourism itself isn't exactly new. It's been around for a few decades, but it's never been as well organized and accessible as it is today. This new industry is growing rapidly and is beginning to enter the public consciousness like it never has before. So what is it exactly? Medical tourism is the practice of obtaining healthcare services in a different country. It's been going on ever since international travel became practical and affordable, but the forces that are driving it have changed markedly in recent years. For several decades, most of the individuals who sought medical care outside of their country of residence were doing so because they wanted to receive their health care from their country or culture of origin. Examples of this include Central American immigrants traveling back to their home countries for surgery or other forms of care, or British expatriates returning to the UK from overseas for their treatment. But then there were also the wealthy patients from the Middle East and from other parts of the world with healthcare systems that weren't as sophisticated as those in the West who were seeking care in US hospitals. Some citizens would leave their country of residence to find treatment that was either unavailable or illegal where they lived. Irish women, for example, seeking abortion services in the United Kingdom. And while these types of medical tourism still exist to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the countries of origin and treatment, the primary driver in the U.S. over the last two decades 
has become cost. American patients, unable to afford the extraordinarily inflated price of care at home, are streaming out of the country to access quality health care abroad. And this raises a lot of very interesting questions. Is it safe? Does it really cost less? Is it legal? What kind of services are available and where? And what are the moral implications, the ethical implications of receiving health care in another country? One thing becomes very clear as soon as you start to look into this burgeoning industry. The vast majority of information on this growing trend is being put out by parties with a vested interest in persuading you one way or the other to stay home or to go elsewhere. A good example of this is a piece of propaganda disguised as a helpful guide for medical tourists that was released by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. It's a masterpiece of subliminal persuasion written for one reason and one reason only, to convince anybody reading it that getting plastic surgery anywhere other than the U.S. or by anyone other than one of their member surgeons is recklessly irresponsible, fraught with life-threatening dangers and probably more expensive than staying home for your surgery. This guide was unsurprisingly written by a plastic surgeon and is so heavily biased that it's unhelpful to rely on for any balanced assessment of the question. By putting terms like highly trained and credentialed in ellipses, the author is suggesting that the facilities and the people in these other countries are actually neither. Also, in the first paragraph of the guide, the author mentions that the surgery at these places costs less, but fails to mention how much less, as if that wasn't an important consideration for the reader after all. She goes on to list complications like infection and ugly scars, hematomas and poor outcomes, as if these outcomes were unique to surgery performed outside of the U.S. borders, which of course is nonsense. They're precisely the same complications and poor outcomes you could easily experience in San Jose, Tampa, or Albuquerque. The article doesn't hesitate to warn, or maybe it's closer to threaten, that American surgeons willing to treat post-operative complications after getting surgery abroad might be hard to find. And this is actually true, which makes it even more deplorable in my opinion. Anyway, the purpose of this document is to scare patients out of going elsewhere for surgery, and as such, it's of limited usefulness to a person looking for a balanced assessment of the pros and cons of this difficult decision. In a very similar vein, the vast majority of pro-medical tourism material has been put out by the legion of new organizations that have sprung up to facilitate medical tourism. One such company, the Medical Tourism Association, publishes a frequently asked questions document that emphasizes the cost savings with statements like cost savings up to 90%, but it doesn't address potential risks of overseas treatment at all. Again, it's a document designed to drive readers to their business, which consists of selling subscriptions to their various medical tourism publications. I'm sure you see my point. Accurate, balanced information relating to medical tourism is hard to find. Even some of the publications put out by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention don't appear to be completely unbiased themselves, emphasizing the risks, but failing to offer any information about the relative risk and the prevalence of these risks in the U.S. People are choosing to leave the U.S. for all kinds of care, from dentistry, in vitro fertilization, cosmetic surgery, orthopedic surgery, cancer care, and even organ transplants. Transplant tourism is a special case and a terrible human rights issue and one element of the dark side of medical tourism, and I'm going to deal with these separately. For the other categories of treatment, what are the cost advantages and what are the specific risks? 
I'm going to take these in reverse order. All surgery and medical treatments come with risk, whether you're getting your care in the US or in Hong Kong, but there are some special risks associated with medical tourism. For most types of medical tourism, the patient is going to be traveling by air to and from their destination, and air travel itself carries some risks. Blood clots can form in the veins of the leg known as deep venous thrombosis or DVT as a result of being immobile during long flights in cramped and seemingly shrinking aircraft seats. In some cases, these clots can break free and be carried to the lungs where they can block the blood flow and cause a condition known as a pulmonary embolism or a PE. This can be fatal when the clot's large. The immobility of anesthetic paralysis during surgery is another risk factor for DVT and PE. So the risks are compounded for post-operative patients who are traveling by air especially when the surgery was prolonged or the flight occurs soon after the procedure. Cabin pressures are also important, normally equivalent to those you would experience at six to 8,000 feet above sea level, and they pose additional risks for patients who've had abdominal and thoracic procedures. In these situations and following some facial plastic surgery, it's usually prudent to wait several days. The CDC says 10 before flying. One of the most concerning risks of surgery wherever it's done is infection, and there are a great many factors that can influence the development of a post-operative infection. These include the length of the operation, contamination of the wound by external factors like dirty or punctured gloves, or internal factors like opening parts of the digestive tract during the procedure. Infections are also more likely in immunocompromised patients, whether it's due to medications or disease. Rough or unskilled handling of tissues which can damage the delicate blood supply and leave devitalized material in the wound is another risk factor for infection. Failure to maintain strict sterile technique is an obvious risk factor with such failures being caused by inadequate sterilization of instruments, poor hand-washing technique, outdated or damaged gowns, masks, and gloves. Even surgical lights that have not been properly cleaned can cause wound contamination. They can also occur for no apparent reason. But all of these conditions can occur in any operating room on the planet, and the relative risk becomes a function of just how meticulously the protocols for aseptic technique, cleaning, sterilization, and handling of equipment and materiel have been followed. U.S. hospitals have numerous checks and balances in place to ensure the highest standards are met in every facility, with a loss of accreditation or even closure of the facility on the line for those which fail to meet all these high standards. Other countries may not have such strict standards in place, or they may not be well enforced. In the U.S., several bodies oversee the safety of hospitals. The Joint Commission is one such organization. In recent years, an offshoot of this group, the Joint Commission International, has begun offering accreditation to member hospitals that lie outside of the United States. Ensuring that your chosen facility is properly accredited by this or another reputable agency is a good first step. Though, as the CDC points out, complications and poor outcomes can still happen in accredited health centers. One area of concern that deserves special attention is the problem of antibiotic-resistant pathogens. We've talked about these at length in another episode of this podcast, but it's worth repeating. The bacterial milieu differs from place to place, as does the antibiotic usage practices of different countries and locations within countries. As a result, a given location may be home to any number of novel pathogens and could result in dangerous infections that are difficult and sometimes even impossible to treat. And while this happens also in the U.S., 
There's evidence that some locations may significantly increase the risk of coming in contact with some truly nasty bugs, like carbapenem-resistant Enterobacter in Thailand or non-tuberculous mycobacterium in the Dominican Republic or Q-fever in Germany. The risk of acquiring other blood-borne pathogens like HIV, hepatitis C and hepatitis B may also be higher in certain overseas locations. Other considerations when contemplating medical travel include security issues related to private information and medical record keeping in some locations, or a lack of licensure information or outcome data from medical professionals at some overseas facilities. The American College of Surgeons released a statement on medical tourism back in 2009, and in that document, the college mentioned several other difficulties that a medical tourist could anticipate. These included separation from family and friends for support, language difficulties, lack of disclosure transparency, exposure to endemic illnesses, a lack of long-term follow-up by the care provider, and also different approaches to the way tests can be interpreted in different countries. The college also brought up the fact that you might not be able to collect compensation in the event of malpractice, and this is a really good point. There are clearly a ton of excellent reasons to think long and hard about going overseas for medical treatment. There must be some pretty compelling reasons why between 800,000 and 1 million people a year are willing to take on some of these risks by getting their health care in Mexico. 75% of these people are going south every year for cosmetic surgery and dental procedures. The other 25% are made up of those going for other kinds of surgical care and for in vitro fertilization services. So here are a few examples for you to consider. $15,900 of dental work in the U.S. can be had in Mexico for about $4,000. $300,000 worth of liver transplant surgery would cost you about $91,000 in Taiwan. A total knee replacement costs between thirty dollars and $90,000 here in the States and $12,000 in Mexico. One day in a Mexican hospital will cost you $300. The same day, $2,000 north of the border. The identical Johnson & Johnson knee implant that costs $8,000 in the United States can be put in for $3,500 in Mexico. A breast augmentation costing $10,000 in the U.S., can be done for $2,500 in the Dominican Republic. But before you rush off to Santo Domingo to get your knockers levitated, you should consider the disturbing fact that the Dominican Republic has been listed as the most dangerous place for cosmetic surgery after more than 18 women who underwent cosmetic surgery at five different Hispaniola clinics were diagnosed with wound infections following their surgery. Most of them were caused by one of two uncommonly awful bacteria, Mycobacterium abscessus and Mycobacterium fortuitum. These are germs indigenous to that area and ubiquitous in the soil of the land. So it's probably a bad place for a boob job, savings or not. But let me stress once again, the fact that a particular overseas hospital has a given infection rate is fairly meaningless out of context. In order to make a decision about whether to have your surgery done at your local surgery center or at this surgery center in another country, you'd also need to know the infection rate for the same operation in your own country. And these are numbers that uh, can be uh, difficult to find, but they are available. So maybe you're wondering if this is such a good deal and seems to be, in most cases, about as safe, why aren't employers sending their employees out of the country for their health care? Well, as it just so happens, they are. 
There's an organization based in Denver, the North American Specialty Hospital, or NASH, which has devised a new model for delivering certain types of healthcare services to U.S. employers. And this is how it works. NASH contracts with employers that have their own self-funded health plan. These are larger companies that bypass the health insurers to take on the risk of their employees themselves. They collect the premiums and they use those funds to cover the healthcare expenses of their employees and their dependents. Now, these premiums are considerably lower in most cases than the health insurance companies could offer. And that's because, of course, the premiums aren't being used to support the insurance company's massive infrastructure uh, or their massive profits or their massive bonuses. So it's a, a much more cost-effective way for businesses that are large enough to distribute that risk safely. Anyhow, getting back to the story, when one of the company's employees needs some expensive orthopedic procedure like a joint replacement, they call NASH. NASH has about 40 orthopedic surgeons with whom they work, and they also have a top-notch accredited Mexican hospital uh, that they're partnered with. NASH takes it from there and arranges for the patient to get all their pre-op testing done at home. The company then matches the patient up with an available surgeon and flies them both down to the Galenia Hospital in Mexico. The surgeon does the operation, flies back home with about $2,700 in his pocket. That's three times as much as he would get paid by Medicare for the same operation. And the patient hangs around for several days of post-operative care and physical therapy. The program is, of course, voluntary for the patient, but if they do opt for this program, they pay not a penny out of pocket. Their travel, lodging, food, and other bills are covered by the employer, who also gives the patient a $5,000 bonus after their surgery. Nash makes its money from the employer by charging a fee for each patient. But the employer, having paid for pretty much everything and given the patient a $5,000 bonus, still comes out saving more than 50% of the costs of getting the surgery done in the U.S. I, for one, find this extremely interesting and a very promising model. It's not without problems, but from everything I've researched on this program, Nash has gone to extraordinary lengths to ensure that risk is minimized and that the quality of care is kept to the same standards expected in a U.S. hospital. So my hat's off to James Polsfoot, the man behind the Nash concept, and I'd love to see him expand this concept to other specialties and locations. It's just the kind of disruptive concept that could shake up the domestic insurance market. But it isn't just medical care that people are crossing national borders to find. More people are headed south of the border every three months to fill their prescriptions. Now that so many simply can't afford to purchase their medications at home. One glaring example of this is insulin. Insulin is a hormone made by the pancreas. It works in balance with other hormones and allows us to maintain steady blood sugar levels. It also allows us to store sugar and several other things. It's not made in patients who have type 1 diabetes, and they need to take the hormone regularly to live. Insulin pricing is one of the most shameful exhibitions of the U.S. pharmaceutical industry's apparently limitless greed. But they aren't the full story. Another rapacious link in the pharmaceutical supply chain, the pharmacy benefit managers, are arguably an even larger part of the problem. Pharmacy benefit managers, by the way, are middlemen uh, who've assumed the power to decide which drugs an employer includes in its health plan and which ones it doesn't. Then it demands payments from the drug maker. You don't pay the pharmacy benefit manager and your drug may not be sold to the patients in that health plan. 
It's the greedy extorting money from the greedy, and it's the employee that's footing the bill for all of this. Over the last 20 years, the price of Humalog insulin made by Eli Lilly has increased 24 times, surging from $21 for a single vial of the product to an astonishing $255 for the same vial. From 2013 until this year, Novo Nordisk's Novolog insulin jumped from $289 to $540, and Sanofi's Lantus went from $244 to $431. Insulin pens, a handy injection system for diabetics, will set you back $700 for a box if you buy it here in America. The same box costs $73 in Nuremberg, Germany, $57 in Tel Aviv, $51 in Greece, $61 in Rome, and $40 in Taiwan. Now, this isn't Viagra we're talking about. This is insulin, a medication that diabetics have to take or they'll die. And it takes a lot more than a single vial to keep most type 1 diabetics alive. An average cost for a three-month supply of insulin in the U.S. is a staggering $3,700. You can get the same drug across the border in Tijuana for $600. Interestingly, it's actually illegal to buy medications for personal use and then carry them back into the U.S., but the law notwithstanding, as far as I can find out, no one has ever been prosecuted under the law. But that doesn't mean you couldn't be the first, just saying. Just as with orthopedic surgery in the example I mentioned earlier, employers are starting to catch on. The Utah State Public Employee Health Plan has started a voluntary pharmacy tourism program for covered patients who are being treated with one of 13 really expensive drugs. The plan flies the employee and a companion to San Diego, where it picks them up and drives them to a pharmacy in Tijuana, just over the border in Mexico. There, they can purchase a three-month supply of their medication. One of the drugs that this plan covers is the uh, immunotherapy agent Humira, which costs $4,500 in the U.S. and less than $2,000 a few miles further south in Tijuana. The program is pretty new, but they've estimated they will cut pharmacy costs to the plan by about a million dollars in the first six months of operation. So just how big a deal is this medical tourism industry? Visa, the credit card people, estimate that medical tourism is a $50 billion a year industry. So that's a pretty big deal. And if I'm reading the tea leaves correctly, that's just a drop in the bucket compared to where this is going to go as more employers run out of patience with the U.S. healthcare system. But if you know me at all, you'll know that I can't let the word visa escape my lips without a word of admiration for another fine upstanding company that makes money by ripping off people who should know better, but somehow miss the excellent educational content provided to young Americans while they're in school. You know, how to avoid the trap of compounding interest from revolving credit card debt. Or come to think of it, was that one of the courses that was dropped to leave room for another intelligent design lecture? I forget. We'll deal with education and credit cards another time. Let's get back to business. So I told you that I'd talk about the dark side of medical tourism, and it is a very dark side. There are several moral and ethical considerations associated with the practice of medical tourism. These are of crucial importance to the citizens of countries accepting foreign patients for treatment. The first consideration must be the impact of diverting limited resources to care for the influx of medical transients from abroad. 
Medical tourists receive services in many countries in both private and public hospitals. So as the destination hospitals provide more and more care to foreign patients, what becomes of the indigenous inhabitants of the area? You see, this is big business for the health systems that are vying for American and European patients, and it's critical that we don't add to the problems of the local populations who are already struggling to get timely care in some locations. When foreign, cash-paying patients are competing with the local population for slots on a waiting list or access to a scarce resource, who's going to win in that? When all the best physicians in a tourism destination are recruited onto the staffs of the new cash basis clinics and hospitals, who'll be there to care for the local population? When limited supplies of expensive pharmaceuticals or implants are available, who gets them? And please don't be thinking that that's not our problem. It should be the problem of anyone considering treatment abroad. In many cases, these decisions are zero-sum propositions. Someone wins and someone must lose. Or more accurately, someone may need to die so that another can live. And this is a calculation that we need to make ourselves. It's a moral imperative that we make it our business to understand the local impact of our use of their resources to ensure that we're not imposing a two-tiered health system for the local population to have to deal with. We've talked about the problem of antibiotic resistance, but I'd like to remind you of how much more of a problem it'll become if the export and import of strange new superbugs goes unchecked. The consequences of a logarithmic increase in antibiotic resistance across the globe would be nothing short of cataclysmic. Global antibiotic use protocols must be established and strictly enforced if there's any chance of slowing the inexorable growth of this terrifying problem. With so many stakeholders, patients, brokers, governments, healthcare providers, insurance companies, and medical tourism organizations, a well-organized, multidisciplinary regulatory framework needs to be in place to oversee the explosive growth of this global industry. We, the big we, the United States, must play a central role in establishing safe and practical protocols governing every aspect of medical tourism. The very darkest corner of the medical tourism industry is that of transplant tourism. I wish I could say that the commodification of human organs was just a wild overstatement of a potential future problem, something we should keep an eye open for. But that isn't even close to the revolting truth of the matter. For more than 20 years, and with incontrovertible documentary evidence accumulated since 2006, the communist regime in China has been rounding up ethnic and religious minorities and interring them in re-education and detention camps. Hardest hit have been the practitioners of Falun Gong, a traditional Chinese movement in which adherents strive for lives that center on truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. These inoffensive and non-violent dissenters, along with many Turkestani Uyghur Muslims of the Xinjiang region, have become prisoners of conscience, filling detention camps across the country. These innocents have been systematically slaughtered and their organs harvested and sold to foreigners undergoing transplant procedures at Chinese hospitals. Literally dozens of Chinese hospitals are still procuring and selling the organs to transplant recipients from across the globe. The problem is not a uniquely Chinese one either. Numerous other countries have been implicated in the harvesting and sale of illegally procured human organs. South Africa, Pakistan, India and the Philippines are among the other countries believed to participate in this practice. The very poorest of the poor in some of the poorest developing countries 
are being enticed into selling their organs to feed their families. Transplant tourism not only exploits the poor and the imprisoned, it also poses enormous risks for organ recipients. With little regulation or oversight, the transplanted organs in these commercial transplants, as they're known, carry with them the very real risk of infecting the recipient with bloodborne pathogens like hepatitis B in 7% of cases, HIV 4% of the time, and a whopping 30% of the time passing on cytomegalovirus. One major driver of the commercial transplant industry is the shortage of available transplant donor tissues in the country of origin. And this is a problem that has to be addressed in those countries if the demand for commercially acquired or illegally acquired organs is to be contained. The International Coalition to End Transplant Abuse in China, ETAC, has established a coalition of lawyers, academics, ethicists, medical professionals, researchers, and human rights advocates to investigate and end the forced organ harvesting in China. Aside from the ETAX efforts, legislation in Israel, Spain, Taiwan, Italy, and Norway has been passed to combat transplant tourism and organ trafficking. Canada will be the most recent sovereign country to criminalize this practice with the imminent passage of Bill S-240, and they vowed to prosecute and severely punish any citizen participating in this practice in any way. Belgium has also criminalized the practice and will aggressively prosecute anyone involved with the practice also in any way, whether as the organ recipient, a go-between or broker, a doctor, or any other healthcare worker. And the penalties are severe. Anyone convicted of this crime will be looking at 20 years in prison and a fine of about $1.3 million. Resolutions condemning the practice have been passed in the U.S. House of Representatives and also in the European Parliament. And this is certainly a start. But the civilized world really cannot rest until this barbaric practice has been stopped for good. There is one organization that takes this growing industry of medical tourism very seriously, and that is the World Medical Association, which met to ratify a statement on medical tourism during their 69th General Assembly, which took place last year in Reykjavik, Iceland. I've attached a copy of the document in the show notes, and I think you'll find it interesting. Most of the recommendations concern the establishment of some type of global medical tourism infrastructure. In this document, the World Medical Association makes many of the points that we've just been talking about, like the importance of developing healthcare systems in every country so that the demand for medical tourism is somewhat controlled. The association goes on to state its position that governments should carefully consider all the implications of medical tourism to their particular healthcare system and develop comprehensive, coordinated national protocols and legislation for medical tourism. They also bring up calling on governments and service providers to ensure that medical tourism doesn't negatively affect the proper use of limited healthcare resources or the availability of appropriate care for local residents in hosting countries. Special attention should be paid to treatments with long waiting times or involving scarce medical resources. Medical tourism must not promote unethical or illegal practices such as organ trafficking. The authorities in any medical tourism destination should be able to stop elective medical tourism when it endangers the ability to treat the local population. But there's also some very sage advice for prospective medical tourists, and I have loosely paraphrased some of the more salient points here. It goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that nothing I'm about to talk about should be construed as any kind of medical advice. 
I'm passing on these recommendations because the WMA thinks they're important. So do I. But for any actual medical advice or decision-making, go talk to your doctor. Got it? Good. So let's look at some of the advice the WMA is giving. First of all, understand that the place you're headed is probably going to have all their own regulations and laws. Most countries do. And some of these destinations may not be as gung-ho as the U.S. when it comes to suing doctors, nurses, janitors, and fellow patients for malpractice. It just makes sense to know what you might be getting into. You know, hope for the best, plan for the worst. Secondly, you should have a treatment plan with a cost estimate and a payment plan in hand before you climb onto the Orient Express. Make it your job to understand the risks of surgery in combination with travel, especially air travel like we talked about. Third, some people might like the idea of combining the repair of their massive scrotal hydrocele with a nice hiking tour of the Himalayan foothills. I suppose I get it in principle, killing two birds with one stone, but honestly, trying to mix up a vacation with surgery sounds more like a disaster waiting to happen. I honestly can't see the attraction of hiking with a hydrocele. That would be the pre-op holiday. Or trying to cram a badly bruised and swollen scrotum into a speedo, which would be the post-op holiday, I guess. To each his own, I suppose, but Adding a holiday to your trip will most likely lead to a rotten holiday, post-operative complications, or both. Fourth, note that privacy laws are not the same in all countries, and it's possible that your medical information will be seen by individuals who are not medical professionals, interpreters being one example. If you decide to go anyway, ask for documentation specifying the services that are going to be provided by non-medical practitioners, including interpreters, and an explanation as to who will have access to your medical information. Fifth, all clinical and administrative individuals involved in your care should be aware of their ethical obligation to protect your confidentiality. Interpreters and other administrative staff will be looking at your information, should sign confidentiality agreements, and your intermediary or the company handling your trip should be able to take care of this for you. You just need to make sure that they do. Sixth, be aware that a change in your clinical condition could result in a change in both your cost estimate and in associated travel plans or visa requirements. And this eventuality is something you need to think about before you go and make absolutely sure that your medical tourism coordinator or helper will be equipped to deal with these issues if they come up. Again, just make sure that they can. Seventh, if your treatment plan changes, find out why and make sure you understand before giving consent to any new plans. Eighth, some patients with terminal incurable conditions may choose to travel for treatment that isn't offered in the U.S. These individuals are particularly vulnerable. In the perfect world, the destination physician should be able to give you honest and accurate information about your medical treatment options, including any limitations of the treatment, uh, whether the treatment is actually going to alter the course of the disease in any appreciable way, whether it will increase life expectancy or improve the quality of life. And if after examining all the data, the physician concludes that it's really not possible to improve your medical condition, the physician should advise you not to travel. But that isn't always the way it works. Patients in this situation are grasping at straws, and understandably so. But it's worth remembering that most, if not all, of these treatment protocols offered abroad aren't available here in the U.S. because they're either unsafe or they don't work. Ninth, medical decisions concerning your care 
should be made by you and your doctor and not by non-medical personnel. So to the extent possible, you should make sure that that is going to be the case. Tenth, some tourism destinations may be tempted to repeat tests that you've already had for no good reason other than to run up your bill. Do your homework, talk to your coordinator, and minimize the risk of getting taken to the cleaners. Eleventh, make sure that you'll be given written reports and treatment summaries in a language that you can read and understand. The instruction, remove dressing in three days, written in Ukrainian, could easily be mistranslated to rub wound with stinging nettles, get drunk, and go bungee jumping. Or at least it would be if I was doing the translation. So just be careful. 12. Make sure that any test results, imaging studies, or pathology reports are going to be sent home to your U.S. physician. And this is very important for your follow-up care. And you need to make absolutely sure that your intermediary or the company you're working with has got all of this arranged. Thirteenth, don't go unless you have a solid follow-up plan for when you get back. Who'll be taking your stitches out, managing your physical therapy, or draining your wound abscess? Ideally, your U.S. physician and your Argentinian physician will have communicated directly at some point about your care and follow-up. Fourteenth, make sure you get discharge documentation that includes confirmation of your diagnosis, your prognosis, and a summary of the treatment you received, and, of course, any post-op instructions. So these are just a few of the more important things you need to think about. Finding the right medical tourism intermediary or coordinator, whatever they're called, should ensure that most of this is taken care of for you. When you wake up in the recovery room, though, with one less kidney and a new tattoo, that's not the time to discover that your U.S. broker is a con artist. Check them out fully before you go anywhere. You can learn a bunch from their advertising and their websites. And a good place to start is to look for companies that provide detailed information about the licensing and accreditation status of physicians and facilities, and even better, the facilities outcomes data. You should find detailed information about the specialties of the physicians, their experience with your procedure, and information about the risks that may accompany medical tourism. If an organization isn't giving you clear, understandable, detailed information about what you're getting ready to do, uh, you should probably give them a wide berth. Advertising that notes the positive attributes of a specific medical treatment should also present the risks inherent in that treatment and shouldn't guarantee treatment results or foster any unrealistic expectations. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't true. Be particularly careful in your review of the cost estimates for your trip. Make sure it includes a breakdown of all the physician's fees, such as those for consultancy or surgery, and any information about additional fees you may be stuck with, such as hospital costs, surgical assistant fees, implants, medications, and the costs for post-operative care. Okay, so let's go back to the original question. Is medical tourism a good idea or an insane risk? Well, obviously, we can't answer that question out of context. In fact, it might only be after you get back home with two perky new breasts, much to the dismay of your wife, that you can pass judgment on the experience. There are simply too many unknowns and variables to assess the risk or benefit of medical tourism in general. I will say this much, though. I am excited to see the emergence of a disruptor in the healthcare sector. It's been desperately needed for a long time. The current state of affairs in American healthcare is untenable, it's unsustainable, and it's long overdue for a shake-up. The devil, as usual, is going to be in the details. 
But if the World Health Association's vision of a safe and sound global medical tourism industry can be coaxed into reality, I see it as nothing but positive for U.S. healthcare. The key players in U.S. healthcare have worked tirelessly to build what's basically a monopoly, an impregnable fortress immune to attack and guarded by their armies of private politicians. The insurance industry in particular, but also big pharma, device manufacturers, health systems, and pharmacy benefit managers, among others, have built their empires on the backs of their captive audience, hardworking Americans. The only thing that has any real chance of making an impact on this deplorable situation is to give the citizens of this country an alternative. Only when the worst of them see their obscene profits and multi-million dollar bonuses drying up will they be potentially, anyway, motivated to change the broken system. Medical tourism may be a valid first step in this direction, and I think it is definitely worth a try. Any initiatives put forward will, of course, be aggressively blocked or sabotaged by the rulers of the status quo. So we need to be ready for that and willing to stand up to the onslaught. Politics will also have a large role to play with the purchase of influence or flat-out bribery deciding a lot of what will and will not happen. So we need to start flushing the system of corruption right now with the upcoming election. We need to be talking to our government representatives to find out Who takes seriously the issue of medical tourism and who is going to support creation of a stable medical tourism infrastructure? The ones who would rather see constituents lose their homes and their savings to insurance companies and health systems, we need to vote them out once and for all. We're a badly divided country. Mobilizing the people to demand access to affordable health care, to act in unity against the corruption in Washington, hell, to do anything, seems like a pipe dream today. But I'm an optimist, not really, but I believe that if we each do our part, if we talk about alternatives to today's status quo, if we educate one another about the possibilities One day, I think Americans will finally get to the point where they've had enough and they're ready to act. In my lifetime, I doubt it. But in the lifetimes of my children and theirs, I hope so. Every American deserves better than what we have now. And if it takes us going to Hyderabad to have our hydra seals hacked off or Tunisia to treat our tendonitis, or Sardinia to scope our sigmoids. And so be it. Thanks for listening. And if you think this or any of the other Death by Ignorance podcast episodes have been useful in your journey to understand your complicated planet, please consider subscribing or leaving a review on iTunes or sending a link to your friends. The more we know, the better our chances. Good day.